Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for having me, both of you, and, and ev everyone for being here. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak to audiences. Um, as a book author, you know, I rely on readers, and I loved, I loved being able to chat with you all, or many of you, out there. And I'm going to start with the most common question that was asked of me, which was, how on earth did you start writing about Area 51? And the, the story goes like this. Um, it was Christmas Eve 2007, and I was at a, a dinner, and an 88-year-old physicist named Edward Lovick leaned over to me, and he said, have I got a story for you. And as a national security reporter, I write for the Los Angeles Times Magazine. I, I hear that a lot. Um, but what Ed Lovick told me was so tantalizing, I kept interviewing him. And what he told me was that he was the original physicist whose team invented stealth for the CIA. He was a Lockheed physicist under Kelly Johnson back when Eisenhower was president. And so the idea, suddenly I thought, wow, that, that base really is a real place. Um, because all the work, a lot of the test, not all of the work, the work was going on in, in Burbank at the Skunk Works, but the test flights were coming out of Area 51, starting in 1955. So I was really interested to get a tour from the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense. So I wrote a letter, and I got back a very um, vague letter that said, I'm sorry, but we're not able to meet your request. And what was interesting to me was they put, uh, Area 51 is also called Groom Lake. It's a dry lake bed out there in the middle of southern Nevada. And they put the word Groom Lake in quotes, as if very clearly saying, that might be part of your lexicon, but it's definitely not part of ours. And as a journalist, it made me want to know why. Why is this base that so clearly exists um, denied to exist? And when I began looking into the CIA documents that had been declassified, which is why, by the way, Lovick was able to tell me that he worked uh, on stealth for Lockheed in the first place, because the CIA in 2007 declassified the program, one of the programs that he worked on, which was called the A-12 Oxcart. And if you've never heard of that, that's because it was kept secret for 50 years, but you might have seen its cousin, which is the SR-71, that famous Blackbird Air Force airplane. Um, and actually, we now know that it was the CIA who developed all the science and technology behind it. The Air Force took the program over in a, a turf battle, as so often goes on in Area 51 that I write about. <clears throat> I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a paragraph from my book, um, just to give you an idea of how the story became so interesting to me. Um, one, and I'm I'm talking here about that A12 Oxcart spy plane, um, 
you know what, actually, before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about where Area 51 is. It was another question. It's located <clears throat> in the desert in southern Nevada. And it's inside of a larger land parcel, which is called the Nevada Test and Training Range. And that land parcel is the size of Connecticut, approximately. And inside of the federally restricted Nevada Test and Training Range is the very famous, historic, and largely unknown Nevada Test Site. And that is where, beginning in 1951, America exploded over 100 atmospheric nuclear bombs. Now, I was born in 1967, so when I first found this out, I not having lived through the Cold War as so many of my sources did, I have to say I was a little bit surprised. I, I knew about nuclear weapons tests in the Pacific, but I didn't realize that we had set off a hundred in Nevada. And Area 51 sits just outside the legal perimeter of the Nevada Test and Training Range. So it's kind of hidden within a hidden place. Um, the way that it worked with my sources, which many people have asked me, was Ed Lovick, the physicist, when I explained to him that I wanted to write a book about this, said, well, you'll need to meet Bob Murphy. He was the chief mechanic on the U-2 and the ox cart and went on to the F-117, so I met Bob Murphy. And then Bob Murphy said, well, you've got to meet so-and-so. And so it went until I had 74 men who had rare direct access to Area 51. 32 of whom lived and worked there for extended periods of time. I'm the kind of storyteller who likes people, and I love hearing people's stories. And so I, this book is narrative nonfiction, meaning I tell you the stories as through the eyes of the men who were there. And they are a group of Cold War heroes. They are scientists, physicists, engineers, pilots, all of whom worked on these different secret projects. and many of which are declassified but hidden. Um, and okay, so here it goes with, with my paragraph. Here we're talking about CIA pilot Ken Collins flying the ox cart, which was developed by the CIA out at Area 51 in the 1960s. It was the follow-on program to the U-2 after Gary Powers was shot down, although the early design and development of the ox cart had actually begun a few years before Powers was shot down, the CIA had a good idea that that was going to happen. Um, so he, out at Area 51, the planes would take off and fly around as the pilots were trying to learn how to get this amazing machine up to Mach 3, which is three times the speed of sound, 2,300 miles an hour, can get from California to Washington in about 63 minutes. And if you need to make a U-turn, you need 186 miles of airspace. Um, Collins pushed the aircraft through Mach 2.8. In another 45 seconds, he would be out of the danger zone. Nearing 85,000 feet, the inevitable tiny black dots began to appear on the aircraft windshield, sporadic at first, like the first drops of summer rain. Only a few months earlier, scientists at Area 51 had been baffled by those black dots. They worried it was some kind of high atmosphere corrosion until the mystery was solved in the lab. It turned out that the black spots were dead bugs that were cycling around in the upper atmosphere, blasted into the jet stream by the world's two superpowers rally of thermonuclear bombs. 
The bugs were killed in the bomb's blast and sent aloft to 90,000 feet in the ensuing mushroom clouds where they gained orbit. Which was kind of my reaction. Um, and again, as I said, not being familiar with the Cold War and this you know, rally of thermonuclear bombs that could send something up to 90,000 feet. I, I mean, it was just astonishing to me. Um, and I wanted to know more. And I began to sense that this link between Area 51 and its nearest neighbor, the Nevada test site, which is divided up into quadrants one, two, three, four, up to 30. Sometimes the quadrants go away. If you look at old maps, they change and shift, adding to the mystery of it all. But um, the men, the scientists who were working at the Nevada test site would kind of practice their weaponry there at America's domestic bombing range and then go over to the Marshall Islands and explode these thermonuclear bombs. And the thermonuclear bombs um, really caught my attention, too. And I'm going to read briefly a second paragraph. And so you can see a little bit also of how I write the book and how I work with my sources. Um, I'll say for a moment that um, one of my, I mean, all the men I interviewed were just incredible. Um, one of my favorite heroes was a man named Hervey Stockman. And he just died two months ago before my book published. Um, at 90, uh, he was 90 years old, almost 90, a few days shy of 90. But Hervey was, um, he didn't want to speak to me at first, but we shared an alma mater. We both went to Princeton. But Hervey left Princeton to go fight the Nazis in World War II. And he flew, during his lifetime, he flew 310 combat missions in three wars. And when he was a colonel, he was flying in Vietnam in June of 1967 when I was born. And he was shot down over North Vietnam. And he became a prisoner of war for nearly six years. He was a very humble man. And he didn't talk much about his heroics. And so I've, it was such an honor to have Hervey Stockman talk to me. The reason that he appears in the Area 51 book um, Beca was because he was the very first man to fly over the Soviet Union in a U-2. And one of the central organizing themes of my book, and something that I certainly like to talk about and I hope people will think about, has to do with these black operations that go on at Area 51. And it has to do with the idea of national security. Um, out at Area 51, you have a number of organizations at work. And this is going back into the 50s. Um, all of whom are still there. There's the CIA, there's the Department of Defense, and there's the Atomic Energy Commission. And the black operations that I came across in my, in my book, all of which I write about and I could speak to you about for hours, the ones that involved the CIA and most of them that involved the Department of Defense really, I feel, made America you know, a very secure place. And we owe a great debt of gratitude to some of these projects that went on. Um, the guys out there reverse engineered a MiG fighter jet that was captured from an Iraqi air colonel and it was an exchange with the Mossad. Uh, the, that jet was reverse engineered out at Area 51 by a guy who I write about in the book, T.D. Barnes. And that, um, after breaking it all down, the, putting it back together, that MiG was flown in mock air battles allowing our pilots to figure out, this was in the 60s, to figure out 
how these MiG fighter jets over Vietnam were killing so many of our pilots, shooting them down, becoming POWs. And that's the birth of the Top Gun program. So Area 51 has all these incredible, really interesting um, links to, secret links to national security. But as I write in my book, there's also some disturbing projects. And the ones that I found all traced back to the Atomic Energy Commission. And one of the, that central organizing theme that I talk about has to do with what I feel is a recklessness by the Atomic Energy Commission in the projects they did. One thing that they did was they set off a dirty bomb on the outskirts of Area 51 in an area called Area 13 because they wanted to see what would happen if a bomber carrying a thermonuclear bomb were to crash on American soil. Um, and so they, they did a mock crash and of course it spread plutonium over 895 acres. That land, plutonium we know, has a half-life of 24,000 years. So that land out there is contaminated. Many people ask me how I got that story. Well, I interviewed the man who was the security guard on the program, Richard Mingus, and he would stand there day and night guarding this contaminated area because he wanted to make a little extra cash so he could buy himself a new car. Um, but going back to Hervey Stockman, Hervey Stockman um, flew in between the wars, he flew as an atomic Sam, uh, atomic sampling pilot, and this is, was remarkable to me when I, when I found out that the pilots were actually being sent through the thermonuclear clouds to test uh, radiation. And a question that often comes at me is how could these people still be alive? And speaking about this with Hervey, it was interesting because some people would die of cancer, whether it was linked, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but Others, like Hervey, lived till they were 90. Richard Mingus, who stood guard on the Plutonium Dirty Bomb Project, joined me at an event at the International Spy Museum last week. Um, but I'm moving away from my time, so I'm going to wrap up with, um, and then we'll take some questions, with this idea that kind of circles back to those bugs flying up in the upper atmosphere. Um, Hervey, um, Hervey, Okay, so the, the bomb that sent the bugs aloft was a bomb called Mike. That was its code name. And it was a thermonuclear bomb that was 10 megatons. Um, it was about a thousand times as big as a Hiroshima bomb. And the bomb had a mushroom cap that was 50 miles wide. Um, there were some issues with the atomic scientists at the time um, working on this thermonuclear bomb, the most famous being Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer didn't want to develop the thermonuclear bomb. He felt that the target was too small for the weapon. Um, and when you look at the Ivy Mike bomb and you can understand what it would do to a city if it were to be dropped on Manhattan, it would take out all five boroughs and it would kill 75% of the population down to Washington, D.C. over time. And so Oppenheimer opposed the development of this thermonuclear bomb. We were in a big race with the Russians at the time. And he was, you know, blackballed because of it. And, and we all know what happened to Robert Oppenheimer. And it's a, it's a great tragedy, I think. Um, and it speaks a lot to the biggest issue of my book, which the conspiracy theorists are having a, a field day with which has to do with secrecy and the, and the battle with the Soviets. But um, 
what I was most alarmed by was this idea that the Atomic Energy Commission, the deeper I looked into this and when I was finding out how reckless they were with their, um, with their tests and also with their pilots. Hervey Stockman was, was uh, one of the pilots. Um, I learned a very interesting and disturbing fact, which was that the presidential system of secret keeping runs along national security lines. And that's how the Constitution was, was set up. But the Atomic Energy Act of 1946 allowed the atomic energy to create its own system of secret keeping, a charter that was separate from the presidential system. So in essence, even the president could be denied information because he didn't have a need to know about it. Um, and so some of the ideas that I bring forth in my book have been accused of just being absolutely outrageous and you couldn't possibly imagine that the government could be possible you know could be could do that but I'll leave you with this little thought about what what Hervey said because he was an atomic sampling here we go I'll, I'll read okay two more paragraphs in anticipation of the Mike bombs manned sampling missions the pilots practiced at the practiced at the airfield at Indian Springs 30 miles due south of area 51 these pilots including stockmen then flew sampling missions through the kiloton size atomic bombs being exploded at the Nevada test site as part of a spring 1952 test series called Operation Tumber, Tumbler Snapper. Up until this time, Stockman explains, the scientists had put monkeys in the cockpits of remotely controlled drone aircraft at the test site. They would fly these things through the atomic clouds. Then they began to be interested in the effects of radiation on humanoids. They realized that with care and cunning, they could put people in there. End of Stockman's quote. And I write, the Air Force worked hard to change the pilots' perceptions of themselves as guinea pigs, at least for the historical record. According to a history of the atomic cloud sampling program, declassified in 1985, by the time Stockman and his fellow pilots left Indian Springs for the Marshall Islands to fly missions through megaton-sized thermonuclear bomb clouds, the men had accepted that, quote from the Air Force, they were doing something useful, not serving as guinea pigs, as they seriously believed when they were first called upon to do the sampling. Stockman offers another perspective, and he told me, in those days, I didn't think much about the moral questions. I was young. The visual picture of these things going off is absolutely stunning. I was very much in awe of it, Stockman recalls. The atomic bombs that were going on in the proving grounds in Nevada were minute in comparison to these thermonuclear bomb monsters out there in the Pacific. Those were big brutes. When they went off, they would punch right through the Earth's atmosphere and head out into space. So those are the bugs. Um, I think that what I'm going to do is now ask the audience to ask me questions. I have so much more information and I'd love to share any of the other programs with you. The U-2, the Oxcart, the MIG. I write about the F-117 bomber program in here. I write about um, a mock helicopter attack that took place at Area 51. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long book and I hope that you'll read all of it from page one. Thank you.
Yes, well, Area 51 shrunk down a bit after the Berlin Wall went down, um, but grew back up tremendously after the War on Terror. So in the past 10 years, the base has become bigger and more robust than it's ever been. We know that the drones are flown out there now, test flown. Um, some of my sources tell me that we're developing, but this is speculation, perhaps a stealthy satellite. But as far as what's going on there now, when you look at that the CIA declassified in 2007 a program that began in 1957, I imagine it'll be a few decades before we really have any idea. That's a great question. As a journalist, um, we don't go through any kind of clearance or procedure. And a lot of people have asked me, how did you get these guys to break national security secrets? And everything that I write in the book, with the exception of the last seven pages, um, involves programs that have been declassified. But um, all, many of them are buried. I mean, that, that program I told you about where we did the dirty bomb test, um, that I had heard about that program. I knew it was called Project 57. And I tried very hard to find those documents from the, an Atomic Energy Commission library that's in Nevada. And I couldn't, you know, the, the documents could not be found. And so I went to the library myself looking for the documents. And the librarians there said, we're really sorry. We just don't know why we can't find them. And I was a little perturbed, so I decided to take a walk around the museum that's adjacent to the Department of Energy library and kind of cool down so I didn't lose my temper with anyone and about these missing documents. And it was there that I was looking at some photographs that were hanging on the wall of some nuclear mushroom clouds. And the security guard came up to me and started talking to me. I had met him through another guy that was in the weapons testing world. And he said, what are you, what are you doing in here? And I said, ah. I told him the story. I was a little perturbed that they wouldn't give me the doc, they couldn't locate the documents. And he said, well, what are you trying to find out about? And I said, you know, the dirty bomb test, Project 57. And he said to me, well, what do you want to know? I was the security guard on it. So with Richard Mingus's testimony to me, I was able to get some keywords, and I was able to help the Atomic Energy Commission locate those documents based on some other keywords that were missing. Yeah. Uh, just a question. I have to ask it. You know, how did things like the um, the alien exercise get started? You know, and the mm -hmm. conspiracy about that. Is it just the fact that the extreme secrecy creates a vacuum of knowledge, and then it gets filled by all sorts of strange things, or or what? Well, that's a great question, and it's a it's the most popular th aspect of Area 51 in the public domain. And what I write about in the book is that. There are three main conspiracies that link up to Area 51, and every one of them actually has a shred of truth. Excuse me, there's some fact in the fiction. So the three big theories that you hear about when you're talking to a conspiracy theorist is that the, the biggest one is, of course, that there are aliens and spaceship there that are being reverse engineered. The second one is that the lunar landing was filmed and faked at Area 51. The astronauts never went to the moon. And the third one is that, the conspiracy theory here, is that Area 51 has underneath it a web of underground tunnels that are connected to other military bases across the country. 
So I interviewed conspiracy theorists and I also interviewed a lot of officials um, about this. But the, the underground tunnel system is interesting. I did find out that at the Nevada test site, there are dozens of underground tunnels and chambers because once the nuclear weapons ban was in effect in the 60s, all of the nuclear weapons needed to be tested underground. Now there's a, a complete moratorium on nuclear testing, so we don't do any nuclear testing, but up until the 90s, we did all of it underground, huge bombs, and the, this had to happen below, below ground. So one of these tunnels is 4,500 feet deep, which is nearly a mile. Um, the lunar landing conspiracy is interesting because many of the craters that came about as a result of these nuclear weapons tests, they would create these big create craters that are filled with rocks, and lo and behold, the geology inside of that, the big glass rocks and small pebbles, is actually similar to the geology on the moon. So the Apollo astronauts visited the Nevada test site in the 60s, and I was able to interview the man who was their tour guide, his name is Ernie Williams, and he's in my book. And he took the Apollo astronauts around these craters. You know, they had rock star status, and he remembers it being a real highlight of his career out there. Um, and then the alien and the UFO conspiracy is a very interesting one. Of course, the reverse engineering, I believe, is a thread. The thread of truth in that is how much reverse engineering we actually do out there. Whenever we capture an enemy aircraft, the first thing that happens is we break it down to study it and then put it back together. Um, and the alien conspiracy theory is a very loaded one, and uh, I'm going to tease it by telling you that it's in my book, but you have to start on page one to get to the ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't skip to the last seven pages as a lot of people have. So with all these documents being declassified, do we feel like, or do you feel like, we're just scratching the surface and there's way more to come? Or do you feel like you have a really keen understanding of what happened out there? Great question. And I believe, well, let me put it this way. After the end of almost every one of my interviews, some of which have taken place over two years, one of the gentlemen would turn to me and say, but you know, Annie, I've only told you 5% of what I really know. So what I have written about is minuscule compared to what there is there. But I think that it opens up an interesting dialogue for journalists and historians and aviation buffs and others to um, find out what a black operation site means in America. Yeah. I was wondering, just given the seriousness and the gravity of the subject matter, did you run across any just, uh, you know, moments of uh, humor or just laugh out loud funny stories that any of these guys might have had mm -hmm. with what went on out there? Many of them. I mean, Ed, Edward Lovick, the scientist who worked on stealth for the CIA, spent a lot of time out there. He told me this great story because in the summers it was so hot out at Area 51, it would get to be 120, and they would just be working day and night. They all, all the scientists had to keep, they had the satellite schedules in their pockets. This was right after the launch of Sputnik. And um, so the Soviets were, the Soviets, as I write, knew about Area 51 from the get-go, and they were monitoring it. And so the scientists would know when the Soviets were going to be going ahead, and they'd have to hide the, the equipment they were working on. 
And Lovick said one time they all they had to hide the equipment away, so they went out into the desert. Um, I mean, they just looked, went out for a little stroll, and he said, I saw a coyote chasing a rabbit, and they were both walking. Andy, listening to your, your comments, um, found it very interesting, very insightful. I, f I found my perception, the thread tended to be, I'm going to say it this way, somewhat negative. I heard relatively mm -hmm. little positive. I heard dirty bombs. I heard things that you can only hear a little bit about. I heard very little about anything that was constructive to our country, our government, our values. Uh, my impression of what I heard you say, now, mm -hmm. it might not be what the book says, and I will read it all, was emphasizing, I'm going to say, the negative. Is, is that what the book will tell you? That's a great question also, and the, the question was, um, Woody felt that my discussion was a little bit negative and critical of of Area 51, and his question was, what about, what about some of the positive things? And um, I write about both, absolutely, in this. Um, a couple of the, you know, I'm, I, I became a fan of the CIA's Science and Technology Department by writing this book, because no doubt what they were able to accomplish out there kept America safe. Um, I'll bring it back to Hervey Stockman. Hervey Stockman was the first man to fly over the Soviet Union in a U-2. Yes, that agitated Nikita Khrushchev a lot. And it was a locking horns between Khrushchev and Eisenhower because of it. But what Hervey brought back in his spy plane was film footage that showed 400,000 square miles of Soviet countryside. And before that, the CIA had absolutely no idea about what was really going on in the Soviet Union. Um, they did not have many spies on the ground, according to the declassified documents. And so the CIA was able to take that footage, the information in the footage, to the president and say, look, the Soviets are not lining up for war as everybody seems to think they are in 1956. And we need to maybe pull back a little bit. Um, at the time, General LeMay, who was running SAC, really believed that the Soviets were lining up for war and was, you know, had a quote, and I, hear, I quote him once in here saying, with a little luck, we would have started World War III. Now, obviously, he was being, you know, humorous, but the antagonism that was going on by the Air Force was very different than the information from the CIA. Another amazing project is that while we were in the middle of the Vietnam War, the USS Pueblo was captured for spying off of the coast of North Korea. And at the time, Robert McNamara's um, secretary, as Secretary of Defense, wanted the president to take action because the USS Pueblo was hijacked and kidnapped and all of our, the crew was under the, under, you know, North Korea had them. And the CIA again said, wait a minute, this is a really bad idea. We're already in one war. Let's see what's going on in Pyongyang. Let's, first of all, get footage of the Pueblo and make sure we can confirm that the North Koreans have it. And then let's see if they're lining up for war. So they sent Frank Murray, who's a CIA pilot who I interview, who flew that mission, 
over North Korea in an ox cart spy plane. And he took those photographs, declassified in 2007, and sure enough, North Korea was not lining up for war. And that led to our getting the crew, crew back, and it also prevented us having another war we could ill afford. I have two questions. Yes. Um, one question towards health. Um, has there been done any research on these people that were exposed to radiation, obviously higher than we probably have results or we could test on? Um, and, and does that serve any research purposes or help us nowadays understanding radiation problems? Um, secondly, my question is in terms of financials. Do we know how much finance, how much budget has been put into this area, uh, how much it has cost the US, and do we have any idea what it saved us or not? Um, I'll do it in two parts. The first part, I, I did interview some of the health experts that were out there, the old timers, and I, I chose not to write about that because it's its own can of worms. There's a group called the Atomic Veterans, and they have a lot of information if you want to look them up. Um, the second part of the question, the black budgets are fascinating. I mean, you know, in journalists, you, you really can't access that information. And uh, one of the stories that I tell, which I think kind of sums it up in an interesting way, Richard Bissell was the uh, CIA man in charge of Area 51 for the CIA starting in 1955. He's more famously known as being the man who had to step down after the Bay of Pigs. But he, what he really... I call him the first mayor of Area 51. He set the base up with a U-2 spy plane. But I, in my research, I found out one of the earliest CIA black budgets came from Bissell, and that went back even further to right after World War II when Richard Bissell, the brilliant Yale economist, was executive director of the Marshall Plan, um, $13 billion to rebuild Europe. and. Bissell was sitting in his living room one night and he got a knock on his door from a friend of his who was working for the CIA under Alan Dulles. And the friend, Frank Wisner, said, listen, can you lend us some money or can you give us some money? And Bissell said, well, I, I don't think so. I need to know a little more. And he said, all you need to know is that Averill Harriman says it's okay, the famous industrialist who was had a hand in the Marshall Plan and also in the CIA's budgets. So Bissell wrote him a very large check from the Marshall Plan, and that siphoning off of that money um, helped to build, uh, was one of the first CIA black budgets. And then just a few years later, Bissell began working for the CIA. Yes. Hi. Uh, we, because we want all writers to be filthy rich, uh, are you planning a second book since you've only skimmed the surface and then in your studies did you find a hint that there might be an area 52 somewhere well there actually is an area 52 um, and area 52 is about 65 miles northwest of area 51 I told you in the beginning of my talk about the Nevada test and training range so sort of off in the top corner of that Connecticut sized parcel of land there's a place near Tonopah Nevada and that's called Area 52. And when we were developing the F-117 stealth bomber at Area 51 in the late 70s and early 80s, um, they needed 
when they needed to practice dropping bombs, they couldn't really do it at that Groom Lake facility that had been used for the espionage platform. So they set up an Area 52, and they kind of just mo they did a model. They essentially just moved, they built rebuilt the same Area 51 type facility out there in Tonopah, and that is called Area 52. Area 51 has gained so much notoriety in the last several years, and particularly in the last six months, a lot of publicity. So it's widely known, and my question is, you have at least three or four satellites, foreign intelligence satellites, parked above Area 51, and they're watching minute by minute as to what goes on. Now, knowing the U.S., in your interviews with the uh, former employees of Area 51, did anybody intimate there's more than just an Area 52, and if so, where it's located? <laughs> Area 53. Um, I mean, you know, Winston Churchill said about Russia, it's an enigma wrapped inside a puzzle, wrapped inside a riddle, something along those lines. And I write that he could have been speaking about Area 51. Um, but the interesting second part of Churchill's statement that isn't widely known is he said, the reason is for Russian national defense. And that's the same with Area 51, that the, the area out there is set up to keep America safe and secure. And the, the, the different facilities that are out there are certainly only growing. And you, I imagine that there, are pro there is probably a movement underground because the uh, satellites can't look underground. You make it seem, um, uh, per se, why does the CIA have pilots? Why don't they just trust the uh, Air Force pilots? Well, back during the Eisenhower administration, um, the fear was that one of the spy planes would be shot down while looking at Russia, and if the pilot was wearing an Air Force uniform, it would be an international incident, it would be a military incident. Um, and so very specifically, the decision was made to make the pilot a civilian. Um, and the cover story for the U-2 was that it was on a reconnaissance mission and had, when Gary Powers was shot down, that it was on a reconnaissance, I, I mean, I'm sorry, a weather mission and it had gotten lost. Um, and that logic kind of followed over. Um, uh, you know, there's another interesting part I write in, in my book about the, there was a whole group of, CIA, of uh, Chinese pilots when we, were we needed to fly over China to detect the Chinese nuclear facility at Lop Nor. And so we hired Taiwanese pilots um, for that same reason, because if they were shot down, and several of them were, and I interview them, um, they w there would be a plausible deniability. A, a Taiwanese pilot, you could say that's not an American. Uh, where are the checks and balances for something like an Area 51? Well, the oversight issue is one that I um, that I that I discuss at length in my book because I do, and this is where I insert my opinion into my narrative. Um, I do take issue with the Atomic Energy Commission, in essence, having what many scholars call unanswerable authority. Um, 
And I believe that that's actually a dangerous situation. And when you're involved in, yes, many of these programs that went on out there are stunning, and they are able to take science and technology to the limits. And, and th it's important, certainly ever since Sputnik, that America stays ahead in terms of science and technology. But when you have that situation where there is no one to answer to, the question is always going to come up, is there any oversight? And you can certainly get a sense of that in reading through my narrative because I talk about a couple programs that, um, in essence, I believe became reckless. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.